0: Do you ever wonder? Actually, I think every Christian thinks about this at some point. Do you ever wonder why God puts up with you? Why does God put up with us? We, we break our promises to Him. Often. Repeatedly. We take Him... And we take his grace for granted. So, why does God put up with us? Indeed, that is the question that is before us in this chapter. And as we look at how and why God put up with Israel, we will begin to see why God puts up with us, though we often fail him, though we often stumble. And so the first thing to see from this passage is to note Israel's behavior towards God. Israel's behavior towards God. Now this chapter 48, this chapter concludes the section about Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. You remember from the past few weeks how the prophet Isaiah foretold Many years before it actually happened, he foretold that God would raise the Persian king Cyrus and that he would come and defeat Babylon. And of course, the Babylonians are, those, are the ones who uh, took the people of Judah into captivity and that God would raise Cyrus, conquer Babylon and under uh, Cyrus, God's people would return home from their exile. And uh, what's really interesting is this. Uh, The the modus operandus, the MO of false prophets, is to deal with vague generalities. The true prophets of the Lord in the Bible, many years before these events came to be, they were specific. They were detailed. And so Isaiah, many years, Cyrus was on anyone's radar Isaiah named him as Israel's deliverer, and he said that Cyrus will save Israel from the Babylonian captivity and return Israel home. But it raises a really important question. Then what? What then? Because you see, Israel's sin caused her captivity, and the exile. It was to discipline Israel that God sovereignly brought against Israel, first the empire of Assyria and then the Babylonians. And so what does it mean that the Jews will be able to return home under Cyrus? The question is, will they return home only to repeat their failures? You see, under Cyrus, certainly the geography and the politics of Israel's world will radically change. But does that mean that Cyrus can also change Israel's heart so that when the Jews return home, they will no longer be at risk of repeating the same failures, the same sins yet again? Because, you know, that is the history of Israel, isn't it? recalcitrant people, hardened people, never learning, always rebelling. So what good will the return from the exile do if they return the same people only to repeat all over their rebellion against God? Can Cyrus, that powerful king, under whose authority and reign the whole world will change? Can Cyrus change Israel's heart? Well, the answer is not a chance. Not a chance. So take a good look at Israel. Verse 1, the Lord calls them the house of Jacob. And as the house of Jacob, they had an honorable heritage before the Lord. They counted as their forefathers the great men Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord calls them, "You confess the God of Israel." So not only they had an honorable heritage, but because they confessed the God of Israel, they followed the true Orthodox religion. And yet' what, see what else God says. But nothing they did was in truth or right. You see, they had this great heritage. They had all the trappings of the right and the orthodox religion. But God says, nothing you do is in truth or right. In other words, there was no sincerity. There was no genuineness. And so uh, chapter 48, verse 2. For they call themselves after the holy city. That word for, it really has the sense of though. Though they call themselves after the holy city and say themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. In other words, these people, they, they put on a good show. They were good actors. And they fooled everyone. And they even fooled themselves that everything was right with God, that they, they were an important people, descending from important people, pra- practicing the world's only true and the Orthodox religion. But the Lord says, the Lord of hosts is his name. You haven't fooled me. And so the Lord calls them obstinate, contemperous, bad-tempered. And he says their neck is is an iron sinew. In other words, they they are stiff-necked. They will not submit to God. They will not bow their heads to God. And your forehead Brass, or can I put it this way, hard-headed, or if you prefer, pig-headed. You see, they were the people who were unwilling to have their minds changed. And so in verse 5, the Lord says, I declare them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announce them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. What he's referring to is that years before Cyrus was on anyone's radar, he, through the prophet Isaiah, declared in specific and details what Cyrus would do. And then he suddenly accomplished his words. None of the idols, of course, do that. They could only take the credit afterwards or steal the credit afterwards. But even though God's people saw what God did for them, rather than admitting what God has said and what God has done for them, they give the credit and glory to their idols. So their attitude can be really summarized like this. We don't care what you say. We don't care what you do. We will never acknowledge that you were right. We will never change. That was Israel's attitude and that was Israel's behavior towards God. And that's why in verse 8, this is what the Lord says, For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. And Cyrus is somehow going to change the heart? (laughs) Not a chance. You see, Israel will return home the same people that they were before they were taken into captivity. They will return home the same exact people and they will begin the cycle of rebellion all over again. That's what's at stake here. And that's the future prospect. But the second thing that we see amazingly It's God's mercy toward Israel. God's mercy towards Israel. Imagine if you know someone and they they said that they're your friends, but they're always lying to you. There's no integrity. They're always breaking their promises to you. They don't care what you say. They don't respect you. They treat you poorly. What would you do? Maybe you've had people like that in your life. Wouldn't you and haven't you cut your laws and say, you know, I really don't need this. I really don't have to put up with this. Bye. That's what we do with people like that, don't we? Faithless people, hurtful people, So why is it that God endures Israel? Israel who has repeatedly and characteristically broken promises to God. Israel that shows absolutely no respect to God. Israel who refuses to honor God. Why does God endure Israel? And the answer is in verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger for my name's sake, for my own sake. Now, in the Bible, a person's name stands for everything that the person is. A person's name is a shorthand to his character, his inner being. And when the Lord says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger, it means the reason God puts up with Israel springs from within his own heart and from the depths of his character. Israel truly deserves to be cut off. And yet, even if sinners deny God's word spoken to them, God is himself always true to his own word. Israel discarded God's revelation, treated God's word as a, as it were, irrelevant, unimportant, useless. But God himself holds his revealed word always. He holds to his word. And so God, he will always keep the purposes and the promises that he declared in his covenant with Israel. God's attitude, his response to Israel, his mercy for them, they all spring from within his own nature. So in verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, if Israel's sinfulness could frustrate God's design, that would mean that sin is mightier than God, and then sin gets the glory. And likewise, if if God's people remain in Babylon, then the Babylonian gods are proved mightier than God of Israel, and they get the glory. But God will never profane His name that way. And he never forfeits his glory, and he never shares his glory. And so it is God's zeal for his glory. And his zeal for glory is the reason why God does not say to obstinate sinners, I am done with you. And that answers our question Why does God put up with us? Why does God put up with you? And it's not because you are worthy and it's not because I am worthy. If anyone thinks that he or she is good and therefore deserves God's blessing, then that person knows neither God nor themselves. Because, you see, God's holiness is not a partial holiness. There is no room in God or in His kingdom. God who is perfect in holiness, that God can never say, well, I guess you're good enough. There's absolutely no room for that because His holiness... Is a perfect holiness. It's the holiness that cannot abide even the hint of sin. That is why when you begin to understand how holy he is, how perfect his holiness is, you cannot think that God grades on a curve, and you cannot think that God will ever say, you know, That's good enough. That is to say, as long as our minds orbit around what God owes us and what we are entitled to, there can be only judgment and wrath. And that is why our coming to God has to be based on nothing that is in us. Because if we ever come to God on the basis of what we deserve and expect God to bless you, Well, guess what? The only thing thing that you and I deserve is wrath and judgment. So that's not how we can approach God. So the only way we can approach God is by relying on who He is in Himself. That God, He is a God who from the depths of His heart, mercy, Springs towards sinners. That he is a God who has a zeal for his glory and that he glorifies his name in the mercy that he shows to undeserving sinners. That's how God glorifies his name, by giving mercy, giving grace, kindness, and love towards those that do not deserve them. And once we understand that, then we have a door opened into paradise. Because then we realize if we can never come to God on the basis of how good we are, how well we have lived, because on that basis, there's nothing but judgment and wrath. But if we can come to God trusting in who God is, that He is a merciful, gracious God who glorifies Himself in the mercy that He bestows, who will not profane His holy and sacred name by letting sin have the last word. If we know that, then we realize that no matter how badly we have lived and no matter how long we have resisted God, We realize the moment we rely on God's mercy, we have a full and complete forgiveness. That's why. And that is how God puts up with Israel. And that's how God puts up with you and with me. Knowing that, we come to the third and the last point, and that is to look back and look forward. Look back and look forward. Looking back, we realize that Cyrus played a very important role in God's plan. And that's humbling, isn't it? We tend to think that God can only use people who cooperate with him. We, keep, we tend to think that God can only use uh, believers. No, but God in his sovereign wisdom and power raised up a man who did not know him, who did not acknowledge him. And he used them for his holy purposes. And Cyrus had a very important role in God's plan. But his influence was only for a little while. And he can no more change Israel's heart than a leopard can change his spots. And so midway through Isaiah chapter 48, you see the focus shifting from Cyrus to another figure. So look at verse 16. And an unnamed speaker says, And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who's speaking here? Well, the clue And the answer are found in the context because in the book of Isaiah, there is only one person upon whom God has poured out His Spirit. There is only one person in the book of Isaiah who is empowered by the Spirit of God to do God's will, and that is a servant of the Lord. So if you remember all the way back in chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. How do you know the true Messiah from the false messiahs? God has put his spirit upon him. And again, chapter 61, verse 1, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Again, how do you know? The true Messiah, true anointed one from the false messiahs. The spirit of God is upon him. So when we read in chapter 48, verse 16, and we hear this unnamed speaker saying, Now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. We realize that the, sh- the focus is shifting from Cyrus. Yes, an important person a powerful person for his time, and yet whose influence and authority were limited, who could never change the sinful heart of Israel. And the focus now shifts to the one who can change the heart of Israel, who can redeem Israel. And the servant of the Lord, that is, of course, Jesus. And that servant of the Lord is being introduced here in anticipation and in order to answer the predicament of verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. You see, that's the predicament, isn't it? If Israel, if the Jews return from their exile but with their heart unchanged, if only to begin their rebellion all over again, what peace can there be for them? As long as they remain wicked, they have no hope. As long as their heart is unchanged, they have no hope. And that is why God has sent His servant, Jesus Christ, because He is able to change people's hearts. He is able to truly redeem God's people, and He is truly able to give them God's peace. And so notice, this, loved ones, that there is no sin that Jesus cannot cover. And there is no sinner that Jesus cannot redeem. But Jesus, he does more than cover our sins. You see, the servant of the Lord is one who is endued and empowered with the Holy Spirit of God, not just in a small measure, but without measure. The servant of the Lord, the most outstanding aspect of him is that upon him the Spirit of God rests in fullness. And out of his fullness, he gives the Spirit of holiness to his people. And it is the Spirit of Holiness who is at the same time the Spirit of Christ who takes the people who are molded by the world and he pours them into the mold of Christ. And because the risen Lord Jesus, he ascended and he sat at God's right hand and he gave his Spirit... It is that Spirit of risen Christ that we have received who is working in us who is now making us to become like Christ so that we have now begun to taste the peace, enjoy and possess the peace which was once out of our reach but because of Jesus and his spirit that peace it has become ours we have begun to experience it and begun to taste it and that's where the peace of god comforts us because you and i we are still not what we wish to be we are still not what we ought to be i don't want to give away my exact age but I've been a believer for almost 40 years now. I am not the Christian that I want to be. And I am not the Christian that I ought to be. And that is a very difficult thing to live with because we love the Lord, don't we? And it breaks our heart that That we still don't have everything together. That we still struggle. That we still stumble. We still falter in so many ways. And yet, this is the peace of Christ that you have and I have. Even though we are still not the believers that we ought to be, that we want to be, when God looks at us, He does not say that our love for Him is not in truth all right. You see, He knows that we are trusting in His Son. And because he knows that we are trusting in his Son as our only hope and our salvation, your God, your Father, he is well pleased with you even when you are not pleased with yourself. And yes, he does refine us. And he uses the furnace of affliction. He does use trials, difficulties in our lives in order to mold us more into the likeness of Christ. And yet, did you hear what he says? In verse 10, not as silver. The significance of that is that when, when silversmiths purify silver, it stays in the crucible and it burns and burns and burns until all impurities are burnt away. Can you imagine if God were to refine us as silver? Kept us in the crucible, kept pouring onto us the fire and the heat until we are made perfect. None of us could survive that. So even when God refines us through affliction, He does so with grace and with restraint. He deals with us gently. And that is the peace of Christ. Even though our trials, and there are many, they are painful and they are difficult, even then God is treating us with gentleness. To what end? In order to make us whole. And one day, one day, to the praise of God's glory, you and I, One day, we will be whole, and one day, we will love him as we ought. And one day, by God's grace, by his power, we will be the people that we ought to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what can we say to this except to wonder and to praise you? For we know our failings, our faults, our sins. And so we wonder and we are amazed at the depth of your grace, your mercy towards us, in which we have hope. Hope for full forgiveness of our sins past, present, and future. And we have hope that one day, We will love you with a pure and perfect heart. And so we pray, O God, preserve us until that day. May we walk before you with faith and with confidence. And may we give you glory all the days of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.